John chapter 6, verses 16 to 21. This is God's word. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is God's word. Well, it's helpful to remember as we come across stories, the Bible is full of stories, particularly the gospel accounts, it's helpful to remember with each story the wider context of the narrative as a whole. So it's helpful to remember both the context of the story is in and then also the context of the whole book, namely the gospel of John. Uh, Remember John the gospel writer tells us at the very end of his gospel, there are many more things that Jesus did. And if he were to write them down, then the whole world couldn't contain the books that would tell of all of the things that Jesus did. Now, we have about in a Bible this big, 20 to 30 pages of stories in contrast to stories that would fill the whole world. So there is a high level of intentionality in what John, the gospel writer, is recording, moved by the Holy Spirit. There are particular stories in here which John records, and he is very intentional in their placement and intentional in the way that he records them. Remembering all the way back when we started, for example, in chapter 1, we see embedded in the text of these days that end up... um, adding up to seven days of creation as John is recording Jesus as the one who is bringing about the new creation. So there's a high level of intentionality in this. Now, I say this because it's very easy in nice stories like Jesus walking on water to sort of lose the context. So let's try and remember the wider context that John has been detailing so far from the very beginning, namely that Jesus is God in the flesh. That's really easy for us to lose the significance of. Jesus, so God, who created everything, who is outside of everything, at one point in history entered into his creation as a man, being born as a baby, to dwell amongst men, to dwell amongst the very people he was there to save. This is an astounding claim. Jesus is the Word who in the beginning was with God and who is God, and then the Word has become flesh and pitched his tent among us. He has tabernacled among us. So Jesus is the one coming down from heaven. This is the overarching theme of John's Gospel, that Jesus is God from heaven who is condescending to dwell amongst us. He is light from heaven coming into a world of darkness. He is life from the source of eternal life in heaven coming into a world of death and decay. He is worthy of every single ounce of our devotion. This is John's purpose in writing this gospel account and for us to see this big overarching theme of God 
taking on flesh and dwelling among us. John is recording all of this so that we would be confronted with this reality and we would see that the whole purpose of our entire lives are to be completely wrapped up in knowing, serving and worshipping Jesus Christ. That's everything. Our whole entire lives are wrapped up in knowing, serving and worshipping Jesus Christ. Just imagine this. Imagine God in the flesh comes to your door, knocks on your door. It's Jesus. And you are thrilled and you think, wow, he's here. But then I am concerned that for many professing Christians, the reality of that event would be that they would say to God in the flesh, you know what, I've got a bunch of things on. I've actually got a holiday down to the coast booked and then I've got a few events on, but could you do a coffee on next Thursday? I think I would fit you in then. It's a bit of a comical story, but I'm quite concerned. I know I can be driven to that, that Jesus doesn't occupy every single ounce of our lives. The Bible actually tells us that we ought to be living in such a way that we're waiting for that. We're waiting. I mean, not for him to literally knock on our door, but we're waiting for him to appear. So he is worthy of every ounce of our devotion. He is not someone that we say, I'll fit you in on Tuesday mornings, Wednesday night, small group, Sunday mornings. He occupies every single ounce of our lives. And John's gospel is again and again pressing us to see this, to see how worthy he is. Every story is showing how worthy Jesus is of every ounce of our devotion. Now, just as John is intentional about what he records, given that he is moved by the Holy Spirit to record, Jesus also is very intentional in the circumstances he brings about. So Jesus ordains circumstances throughout his earthly ministry in order to reveal his glory, in order to reveal certain things, in order to reveal his worthiness and his majesty, circumstances which should compel us, compel those people who see them to fall at his feet and worship him. We've just seen this in the last passage we went over last week in Jesus feeding the 5,000 or more like the 15,000. We have seen that. He, is, he has complete ability to provide abundantly in impossible circumstances. The idea of feeding 15,000 people with less, almost about the equivalent of the bread that is in front of you now, that's a miracle. It is showing he is totally worthy of every ounce of our devotion. He is our provider. So the proper response to that is one of humble adoration. And after feeding the 5,000 or 15,000, Jesus now is very intentional about his next move. You might say he's a bit of a tactician. Every move is intentional. And what we see after he feeds the 5,000 in our passage here from verse 16 is that Jesus intentionally, intentionally leaves his disciples. They head out to the sea. Jesus stays behind. He stays on the land. And this is no accident. Jesus wants his disciples to be out in the middle of the sea. He wants there to be a situation where they are going to be fearful again so that he can come in and display his power and his ability to provide and also to give them an opportunity to display their faith in him. Now, it's important to, he, uh, to say here that John's account, so this is another story, just like the feeding of the 5,000 is recorded in all of the other gospel accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This story here is also recorded in Matthew and Mark. 
Luke doesn't record this, but it's also recorded elsewhere. And it's important for us to remember that this is John's account. I say that because there are, there are two dangers that we ought to avoid here when we come across stories that are also recorded in other gospel accounts. The first danger is where you conflate the stories. Like if you've ever seen, if you've ever seen a Christmas play by a school and in the nativity you have some wise men mingling with some shepherds at the same time. Now these are different, they, they were not there at the same time. Matthew records the wise men uh, coming probably much later, Luke records the shepherds who were probably there a lot earlier. They weren't there mingling at the same time, but often we conflate everything, we try and harmonize everything, and it's this sort of weird mix. Now, that's one extreme to avoid. The other extreme to avoid is where you analyze each story so independently that you all of a sudden think that John is recording some different event or a different version of Jesus. We do not want to conflate stories, but we also want to avoid thinking that gospel writers are portraying a different Jesus. The gospel writers in stories that are the same, they are portraying the same events with consistent truth, but through different lenses. And each different lens should be viewed on its own merit so that we can see what that author is actually leading us into. John here strips back his account of this story so that we can see particular things. So with that housekeeping, let's avoid trying to conflate all of these stories to try and make them one, even though they are the one event. Uh, but let's certainly not think that John is recording a different story here or a different Jesus. This is the same story. This is the second time that Jesus appears to his disciples. The first time he comes to them in a boat in a storm and he is there, he is asleep in the boat and he calms the wind and the waves and says, peace be still. This is the second time that the disciples find themselves in a storm in the middle of the sea. The difference is Jesus is not there at this time. So that's a bit of housekeeping for us to come into the passage. Now let's look at the passage here in verses 16. We read just the first three verses to start with. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea they got into a boat and they started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. That's key here. See the picture of the disciples heading out to sea on their own. It's dark. And then in verse 18, the sea becomes, getting, becomes rough. It's windy. There's a storm. And the key thing here is Jesus is not there. Jesus is not with them. The disciples are descending into seeming chaos, into disruption, into darkness and a storm. That's the picture here. Now we must remember that the sea in a Jewish understanding is often seen as this place of destruction and chaos. That's the symbolism behind the sea. There's a reason why a lot of the prominent Jewish cities were not along the coast. The idea of a holiday at the beach on a hammock sipping mimosas is not something that was in the forefront of the minds of Jewish people. The sea was not a place that you go to for leisure. The sea was a place that you went to for work to get your fish, to get your, basically your livelihood, but it was often fraught with danger. Even in the Sea of Galilee, you can still to this day look up a YouTube video of a storm on the Sea of Galilee. It's quite rough. 
It's, it's more like a, you know, a, a, the size of a lake, but it gets really rough because of the geography, the, the, the actual level of the sea below sea level. It gets really windy and it is rough seas. The sea was not a place of leisure and delight. It was a place to be feared. It was often a place where you could not control the waves. So it's fraught with danger. We see this through the Bible. Remember Daniel 7, where we went, to, we went through uh, last year, where in Daniel 7, the beasts that are these mutated beasts that represent all of these worldly empires, they are coming out of the sea because it's this place of chaos. It's this place of destruction. Even in Revelation 20, just a few chapters before the passage that James mentioned in his prayer, in Revelation 20, uh, right where we see that the judgment, we see death and Hades linked with the sea, where the dead are brought up from the sea, and then they are then to be judged and thrown back into a type of sea, into a lake. It's this place of chaos. It's this uncontrollable place of fear. And this is the picture we are meant to have when we see in this passage that the sea is becoming rough through the strong winds in the deep darkness. This is the backdrop that sets the scene for Jesus to display his power and glory to his disciples. So today I want to look at three primary ways that Jesus reveals his power, his ability to provide and his glory in this event. The first is that Jesus has complete authority over all the chaos of the world. Jesus has complete authority over all of the chaos of the world. Remember the conclusion from the disciples after they witnessed Jesus calming the storm in the first account that we have in Mark 4 and elsewhere in Matthew. Jesus calms the wind and the waves. Immediately it is still. And what do the disciples say? They say, what kind of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? What they're saying is, this is a supernatural level of authority. No man can calm the ocean. No one can do that. This is a supernatural level of authority. And now in our passage today, Jesus is again displaying his authority over creation as he casually walks over and don't have this picture of calm seas. I mean, it's one thing to be able to walk on on a flat, calm sea. No one can do that. But the picture is of chaotic waves and Jesus is casually walking on the water. So in the midst of the uncontrollable sea that is feared, that is so feared amongst the Jews, Jesus is demonstrating his authority and control over it by quite literally trampling over the chaotic waves. Jesus is embodying what Job spoke of in Job 9.8, where he said, God alone stretched out the heavens and trampled on the waves of the sea. That's something God alone does. Here, Jesus is quite literally trampling on the waves of the sea on his way to the disciples. The picture we should see is this fierce and uncontrollable sea with a man who claims to be the Messiah almost looking like he is going for a casual nighttime stroll over it. Even in, I think it's Matthew's account, he records that Jesus looks like he's just going to walk by the disciples, just out on a casual walk on the ocean, as the disciples are fearful for their lives. Jesus has authority over the fiercest waves and tsunamis that the ocean 
could ever bring about because he is the authoritative voice who in the very beginning created the ocean and prescribed limits for it. He is the same voice who said, this far you shall go ocean and no further. He set the limits for it. He has total authority over creation, over the chaotic seas. Now, not only does Jesus have authority over the destructive nature of the sea, but he has authority over all that the destructive sea is symbolic of. This is, I think, part of the deeper meaning here. Remember in Daniel 7, where these mutated beasts rise out of the sea and they are symbolic of these worldly empires, of the, the Greek empire, of the Medo-Persian empire. All of these empires, which in various ways set themselves up against God. They all set themselves up against God. That's part of the reason why they are these mutated beasts. They're distorted. They're not what God uh, intends for a worldly rule, they are distortions and they set themselves up against God and they come from all of the chaos of the sea. And it is the same today. It is the same today where all of these evil ideologies and rulers rise up out of the destructive cultural sea and they set themselves up against the rule and reign of God. Think about it, the ideologies that we see today. Some of the ideologies which, which, which lie behind modern gender theory that attempts to redefine mankind and give the ultimate insult to the creator, which is to say, why have you made me this way? It is the ultimate insult to say, you have not made me this way. I will become God and redefine what a man is and what a woman is. And behind it, lying behind, often uh, not innocent because no one is innocent, but misguided people who we should be lovingly caring for and proclaiming to the truth, often what lies behind it are these ideologies that are representative of all of the evil and chaos, things that set themselves up against God. If we look back through history, there are other forms of cultural chaos as well. Think about just the 16th century in England where people like you and me who held to good Christian Beliefs, good Protestant beliefs, were being burnt at the stake. William Tyndale, Ridley, these men who were being burnt at the stake for simply holding to the beliefs that you and I have, for wanting the Bible to be in the hands of everyone, and they were burnt at the stake. And what lies behind all of that is this same evil and chaos, this cultural chaos. But the point is, regardless of the chaos and disorder that comes out of our cultural sea, whatever may come out of our cultural sea in the future, regardless of that, Christ has complete authority over it all. He tramples on the heads of the waves of these beasts, of these evil ideologies. Christ tramples on their heads as he preserves his church in the boat as we are in the midst of quite a rough sea. And Jesus, in the same way, tramples on all of the waves of social chaos in order to preserve you and I as his church. He is the one who the psalmist speaks of in Psalm 77 when the psalmist says, When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. Jesus at any moment can dry up the ocean by the word of his power in the same way at any moment he can prevent whatever cultural chaos there is, whatever persecution, whatever difficulty, whatever storm of life he has total authority over. And what comfort there is for us, what comfort there is to know this 
Christ. See, for, for those of us who know this Christ, there really is no chaos. I'm, I'm intentionally using the word chaos because I think from our vantage point, it seems chaotic. Think about the disciples in an uncontrollable ocean. It seems chaos. Chaos, by very definition, is something that is uncontrollable. But the reality is there is no chaos. God is in control of everything. There is nothing uncontrollable for God. It may seem uncontrollable to us, but the reality is God has complete authority and ability to control everything. Similar to last week, there is no event in your life that is ever beyond God's control. There's no event that he is not able to abundantly provide in impossible circumstances. Likewise, with all that lies before us as a church in a culture that may be increasingly hostile to Christianity, there is no situation that is uncontrollable. God is totally in control of all things. And just to know this, just to meditate upon this, is to bring us peace. This leads us to the second point. Peace is not the absence of darkness, but the presence of Christ. So firstly, our first point, Jesus has complete control over all of the chaos of our world. Secondly, peace is not the absence of darkness, but the presence of Christ. As, as the disciples are terrified in their boat, Jesus announces himself in our passage in verse 20, and he simply says, it is I, do not be afraid, fear not. It is I, here I am, no need to fear. Now, this is in contrast to their first time in a storm where Jesus immediately rebukes the wind and the waves. Remember, Jesus is asleep in the boat. The disciples are fearful. So Jesus gets up and he says, peace be still. Immediately the wind and the waves cease. Here, John doesn't record this. Neither does Matthew or Mark. It, it doesn't seem as though the point is that the wind and the waves stop. It seems as though the wild wind and waves actually continue as they see Jesus, as Jesus is there. And a conclusion we can draw from this is that peace does not come from the absence of whatever darkness or difficulty we may be in. Peace doesn't come from changed circumstances. Peace comes from the presence of Christ. That's the point. I mentioned this probably a year ago because it was about the time that I installed these, this roller shutter um, outside because I wanted the room to be pitch black in our bedroom. And as I was testing it out, it was the middle of the day and I had Eliora with me. She was... Yeah, a bit, maybe like a, a year and a half or something. An age where you would be terrified of pitch black. That's for sure. And as I was testing out this thing, I kind of uh, had a dad moment and forgot that Eliora was there. And I, I shut the door. I was in there with her and the roller shutter went down. And immediately everything was pitch black, which is beautiful. That was what I wanted. But Eliora let out this blood curdling scream and was terrified. And it was so dark that I couldn't see where the actual remote was, but Eliora was right here. I could feel her at my legs and I picked her up and she was instantly calm. It, it wasn't the absence of darkness. It was still pitch black. The thing which most terrified her, but as she was clinging to me as her refuge in the darkness, she found her peace. And so it is with us. We do not find our peace in changed circumstances. We may remain in deep darkness, in pitch black circumstances of our life, 
but the presence of Christ is what brings us peace. This is the case in Paul's well-known passage in Philippians 4. If you remember in Philippians 4, this is where Paul talks about the peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding that guards our hearts and our minds, and he ties that to prayer. And what Paul does in Philippians 4 when he talks about this kind of peace, this peace which surpasses all understanding, it's, it's an, almost an unintelligible peace, a peace that someone would look at your life and say, why are you so calm? Your life appears to be falling apart. Why are you so peaceful? This peace, Paul bookends in Philippians 4 with the presence of God. Notice if you do have your Bibles, or I'll read it out, midway through verse 5 in Philippians 4, Paul says, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand, saying, the Lord is near. It's literally saying, the Lord is near. He is close. Therefore, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds, where? In Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. That's the point. In Christ. So the Lord is near. He is near to you. He is present. Therefore, do this. Pray to the Lord, offer your thanksgiving, the peace that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's about proximity to God. We see that in our passage here. In the storm, Jesus steps toward the boat and he says, fear not, the Lord is near. And then there is a peace that surpasses all understanding that guards the disciples' hearts and their minds because, in a sense, they are in Christ Jesus. The Lord is near. We see here in John's uh, passage, it's like this great contrast from uh, fear and trembling with this chaos, this chaotic weather. And then all of a sudden, it seems like all is just calm and well as the presence of Jesus is felt. And so it is. With us, and just as an application on prayer, this is why prayer is so important for maintaining peace amidst trials and uncertainty. This is why a rhythm of prayer, both individually and then as a community of God's people, is so fundamental. Because prayer is what reminds us of our nearness to God. It's how we experience an intimacy. It's a deep communion in prayer. It's actually what, what tangibly reminds us the Lord is near. In those moments of deep prayer and before it, you felt distant and after it, something has happened. You feel near to the Lord. You're not as anxious as you were before. Prayer is actually what lifts us above our circumstances and reminds us that the Lord is near. Because it's, of course, not as if God removes himself. He will never leave us nor forsake us. The point is that we, through prayerlessness, through ill discipline, we turn away from him. We can become distant through prayerlessness. To give an example, it's like our life is at a, a, a nice beach and we are tethered to the shoreline. The shoreline is God's presence. We can frolic in the water of life in His presence. We are tethered through prayer. We have a rope attached to us. Those who are not in a rhythm of prayer do not have a rope. Now, the point is that many professing Christians can frolic in the water so long as it's nice weather. So long as the water is calm, they can frolic in the water and they'll be okay. 
And so many professing Christians depend totally upon flourishing circumstances as a way of feeling near to the Lord. Because when wind and waves come, there is nothing keeping them to the shoreline. They just drift off, whether it is chaotic sea or whether it's just a gentle rip that is not all that noticeable, but if you are not tied to anything along the shoreline, you just drift off. Prayer is what tethers us to the shoreline of God's presence. It's almost like at times prayer is like us pulling ourselves back to the shoreline, to God's presence, to being near to him. A deep and sustainable peace will only ever come as we realize our proximity to the Lord and prayer is the means by which we remind ourselves of our proximity to the Lord. Prayer is essential. And where that is present, where that is present in the life of the follower of Jesus, peace does not come from changed circumstances. Peace does not come from an absence of darkness. Peace comes from the presence of Christ. And we are in rhythms in our life that remind us of that constantly. The third and final comforting principle we can take from this passage is that our ability to reach our destination will be by the presence of Christ with us. Our ability to reach our destination, namely our eternal home, will be by the presence of Christ with us. Here's where we can borrow some help from the other gospel writers who record this event. We know that the disciples, though John doesn't record it, we know that they have been rowing for several hours. They leave at evening time. By the time Jesus gets to them, it's the third hour of the night, which is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m the third watch of the night, sorry, between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So they probably left sometime between 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, maybe 8 o'clock. They've been rowing for six or seven hours. Now, their journey, it's not a 10-minute journey, but it's not a seven-hour journey. Something has gone wrong. Clearly, the storm that they are in has forced them into treacherous conditions that are preventing them from reaching their destination. Now, this is where we should stick with John's emphasis in his account. Look at the picture that John wants us to see, the difference between the first four verses of the disciples heading into darkness, rough seas, Jesus is not there, That's the picture. And then all of a sudden, look at verse 20 and 21. Jesus comes, says, it is I, do not be afraid. And then look at 21. Then they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. It's almost like they've been transported. It's like as soon as Jesus steps in, something happens. All of a sudden, they're at the shoreline. It's incredible. It's it's another miracle, really. Now, if we zoom out, And we apply this to ourselves and we think about our destination as disciples, namely our eternal home. Our assurance for reaching our destination, which is our eternal home, is the presence of God with us by His Spirit. That's our assurance, the fact that God is with us. The fact that the Holy Spirit dwells within us, that Spirit whom Jesus sends and He says, to the church, I will complete the work which I began in you. He is the one who will complete it. That is our assurance. And in this path toward our destination, our lives will often be tossed about by wild wind and waves. 
That is a guarantee. Think about the psalmist in Psalm 42. The psalmist describes his life in these very terms. The psalmist in Psalm 42, which is quite a, a depressing psalm, at least the psalmist experiencing a form of depression. And he says, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. This is him addressing God saying, all of your waves and all of your breakers, they're crashing over me. That's how I'm feeling in this life now. I'm tossed about. I'm being tossed to and fro by all of these wind and waves. Now, whether it is a result, a direct result of sin in our lives or simply a result of this fallen world, we will face similar seasons of destructive waves. We will have broken relationships. We will have devastating sickness. We will lose jobs, lose homes. There will be persecution. These things will happen, especially for those who seek to live godly lives. That's a guarantee in God's word that through many tribulations, we must inherit the kingdom of God. And uh, those who desire to live a godly life will face persecution. So if we as a church want to remain faithful, then we must brace ourselves for the cultural waves within and without the church to beat against us. Waves of people, even within the wider church, who think it's legalistic to prioritize gathering together with God's people. Other cultural waves of people who think it is obscene to draw a distinction between men and women. People who think that's outrageous to draw that distinction. And professing Christians can often avoid these waves, in a sense, by hugging the shoreline in safety. They can often avoid the waves by staying close to the shoreline in safety. Like when you tend to tone down your Christianity to make yourself less offensive. I don't know if you've done this before. I remember in the early days, it felt a bit odd to say the word Jesus Christ. I would often use more comfortable words like, I go to church. That's a very comfortable way of sort of professing your faith to say, I worship Jesus Christ is quite another thing that cuts the room. It's really easy to hug the shoreline in our lives as followers of Jesus, but that is not where Jesus wants you to be. That's not where he wanted the disciples to be. He didn't want them to hug the shoreline. If they tried, he would have just sent the waves to brush them out right into the middle of the sea. He didn't want them to find a different route. He wanted them to be right in the middle of the sea with all of the chaotic wind and waves where they would be fearful so that it would be the perfect back, backdrop for him to show his ability to provide and sustain them. That's where Jesus wants us. In the middle of the sea, waves crashing about against us so that we may see he is totally able to preserve us in that moment. And what will keep us on track in the waves in the wild winds, what will keep us on track to arrive at our destination? It will not be our ability to row harder. It will not be our ability to find a different route, to hug the shoreline. The only thing that will keep us on track to arrive at our destination will be the presence of God's Spirit with us to sustain us and faithfully present us before the Father. That will be it. God's faithfulness will be that which keeps us on track. The fact that he is faithful and he has promised to complete this work which he has begun. 
And the beautiful thing, which we'll be able to go through over the next several weeks in the rest of chapter 6, Jesus is then going to detail all of how this is displayed in his work, the goal of his work, the fact that he will be the one to finish what he has begun. Notice just quickly as a bit of a, a, um, a sneak peek in verses 37 to 39 of chapter 6, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He will not cast anyone out who genuinely comes to him. He will not cast them out. Because those who come to him, notice then verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, all that the Father has given me, but raise it on the last day. So the Father will be drawing people to the Son and all those whom the Father gives to the Son, the Son will never cast out. He will bring them to the completion of that goal, namely being raised on the last day to behold the glory of God, to enter into the joy of their master, to experience the fullness of the majesty of God. This is our assurance. Jesus will sustain us, even as we feel as though we are in the wind and the waves, tossed about by whatever circumstance. Jesus wants us there. We see his glory. We see his glorious provision far better when we are in devastating situations and yet we are preserved. Like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, hard pressed but not destroyed. We are not crushed. We are sustained. Though we have this treasure in jars of clay, we are sustained. And all of this must continue to make us look outward in faith to the faithfulness and worthiness of our Savior. Our ability to reach our destination is assured by the presence of God with us. So just to recap these comforting principles here. Number one, Jesus has complete authority over all of the chaos of the world. There is no situation in the world that is uncontrollable. From our situation, sometimes it will seem like chaos. There really is no chaos because everything is under the perfect control of the Lord. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every move is from the Lord. Secondly, peace is not the absence of darkness, but the presence of Christ. We do not seek peace through changed circumstances. We seek peace through prayerfully drawing nearer to the Lord. That is where our peace comes from. A peace that actually lifts us above our circumstances. And finally, our ability to reach our destination will be by the presence of Christ with us. We will not be called to find a different route. We will not try and work out a better way of doing Christianity. We will depend wholeheartedly upon Christ and his ability to keep us from stumbling and present us before the Father in glory. That is our hope. Let's pray now and we will prepare ourselves to respond by taking the bread and the cup together. Father, we thank you for these comforting words. We thank you for this picture of Jesus trampling on the heads of the waves in all of the chaos and intentionally casting his disciples out into the ocean, not hugging the shoreline, but heading out into all of the wind and the waves so that in that moment they would again see what kind of man is this who has authority over all of the wind and the waves that they would see yet again his ability to provide abundantly in impossible circumstances, his ability to preserve. And may we 
have that same heart of awe and gratitude as we look at Christ's ability to hold us fast, Christ's ability to preserve us in the boat of his church and to keep us moving forward through all of the wind and the waves that we will face. We can have assurance in that. So fill our hearts with joy and gratitude in that and help us now to uh, respond in faith as we take the Lord's Supper together, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.